On this episode of China Unscripted, China and India are amassing troops along the border. The real problem is that China is living in an alternate reality, and that could cause a major war. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesda. And joining us today is Professor M.D. Nalapat. He's the director of the Department of Geopolitics and International Relations at India's Manipal University. All right. Thanks for joining us today. So China recently uh, passed a new uh, land border law. Now, uh, both sides are amassing military on both sides of the border. Uh, recent uh, border talks failed. What do you think is next? It's not India at present that the Chinese uh, Communist Party is afraid of. It's the potential of India. Till now, they have relied on the Indian system to muck things up in India and to ensure that India underperforms consistently. And India has consistently, you know, uh, I mean, met their expectations and underperformed spectacularly. But there has been a change in that India. You've got younger people. You have digital India. You have new technologies coming in that are freeing people from dependence on the bureaucracy. And you have a leadership that's pretty vigorous. So they're afraid of the potential. Now, I was mentioning about the young people of India, how talented they are, and how companies moving in from China can find the brain power needed to operate from, I would say, the first two or three months. So they're afraid of that. So they would like to kneecap that by humiliating India and by basically destroying the confidence of this country and destroying the confidence of the international community that of India as a country able to stand up to China. So it's important for them that the one pure competitor they have, the potential competitor, again I repeat, is not India of today. It's the potential of India they're worried about. What China was in 1983, and what it became in 2003, they don't want that for, to, for India to happen in the next 10 years and not 20 years. So that is where there's a temptation to go after India and humiliate India militarily in such a way that international investors feel unsafe uh, in India because you're vulnerable to the Chinese and a lack of confidence uh, comes in the government. There becomes public turmoil in a democracy that kind of a defeat is always going to be very messy in terms of the political fallout. So that's what they're looking at. And secondly, Xi Jinping has a problem with low growth. He has a problem because he's got micro control. He's got a system in which every part of the economy has got to be coordinated for a grand purpose. Now, what is that grand purpose? That grand pur purpose is conquest. And in Xi Jinping, if you look at his, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. The military is front and center of his planning, of his image building. You always see Xi in the parade ground, saluting, being saluted at. You know, it's always the military and glorifying the military. And, and therefore, it's, uh, it's only natural that they want the military to intervene. And they do have the military intervening in a number of locations, either as a, as a show of force, as a means of bullying, or as, an, as a threat 
or into actual operations. So I would say the risk is very, very high that there is likely to be a border conflict between India and China in the next few years. Like fighting, like uh, spiked clubs like before, or you think actual troop on troop guns? Uh, well, uh, may I point out that our boys, when they were, they were willing to fight hand to hand, but when the Chinese took out their clubs and, you know, the, with the nails embedded in them and all that, our boys took out their bayonets. I mean, they had kept the bayonets in the pocket. Bayonets are not guns. So they didn't break any law. And they kept it in their pockets. They immediately fixed the bayonets. And I think bayonets were a lot more effective than spiked clubs, if I may say so. Uh, certainly from the casualty figures that I have been told, the bayonets were very effective. I can tell you the next round, I don't believe it will be a nuclear conflict. There will be a lot of chatter in, in, you know, in talk shows and in think tanks, especially think tanks that will believe they'll get donations from people in for fear of a nuclear holocaust because no nuclear power can go to war with another nuclear power in a nuclear way. They can go to war conventionally. You cannot use nuclear power uh, nuclear weapons against another nuclear weapons power because then that exchange will risk, I mean, very frankly, you know, if I may say so, uh, the destruction of the planet. So that is out of the question. It's not going to happen. The, we have just tested an Agni-5 missile. That's uh, the, the, the range advertised in the newspapers about 5,000 kilometers. I think it's a little more than that. It's very precisely 5,000 kilometers, which means any part of China can be reached by that missile from any part of India. So that is a nuclear-capable missile. Frankly, it's meant as a deterrent. It's not meant for use. And the Chinese have got a whole lot of stuff that they are using, that they are developing so far as the United States is concerned, India is concerned. Don't forget, for China, the main fear is not so much India, is that India and the U.S. will team up in a military manner. They will go absolutely berserk if, if, they, if there is, for example, an open military alliance between India and uh, the United States, because that is what they're afraid of. They're afraid of those industries relocating to India. Now they're going to Vietnam. They're going to Indonesia. They're going to Thailand. Some are going to the Philippines. Very few are coming to India. But now more and more are coming to India in the last six, seven months because they find Indian talent and they find an ecosystem here and they find a market here. And that is worrying the Chinese. And the more that uh, that, that kind of a, a continuation of that trend continues, the greater the, the need, if I may say so, from their point of view, to inflict a lesson, to humiliate India and to tell the, in the world this is a second-rate power and will always be. Never rely on it so far as we are concerned. And any company coming there, well, you better watch out. We, are, we, are, you know, we can take you out at any time like we have taken out the Indians. I don't believe that's possible, but that is, that is their mindset. The problem is they believe their own myths. They have created their own alternative reality. Alternate reality. And when a, when a leadership is determined and ruthless and coordinates private industry, the media, civil society, foreign companies, domestic companies, 
everything towards a common purpose well and if they march to an alternate reality we are in serious trouble unless we challenge their alternate reality and shatter it like glass what do you think the indian government can do to deter that type of attack from china like to kind of shatter their alternate reality as you put it uh shelly i can tell you that as i said i have nothing to do with the government but from my very limited knowledge of the government and my limited knowledge of the key personalities in the government the prime minister mr modi the external affairs minister mr jay shankar the defense minister mr rajnath singh i mean from my very limited uh, you know interactions with them i'd like to say that uh, india is not looking for a fight but at the same time india i think is expecting a fight because we do uh, it is very difficult through reason and through logic to break through alternate reality especially when people around you are telling you that you're right you're right you're right you're powerful you're mighty everything is going going to going your way you know they i mean it's very difficult to break through that so we are quietly creating facts on the ground we are quietly creating logistical chains we are quietly creating intelligence networks together with some of our close friends or friendly countries and i think we are developing a fairly warm relationship i mean joe biden and kamala harris were very negative about modi before they came to power they completely changed once they came to power and they read the tea leaves in other words from the national security documents india is indispensable to united states for a free and open indo pacific and you are indispensable to us for us to maintain that and it is indispensable for the sino russian alliance that india and the united states not enter into a defense relationship so if they see us moving into a defense relationship they might decide okay the time has come knock these guys out now before it's too late before that relationship deepens the only point is we have a tradition in india of uh, oral communication and i was telling matt before the show our entire nuclear and space program most of the key decisions and commands were transmitted orally hardly anything was in writing and the one reason was you had the cia you had the chinese secret service you had the europeans everybody looking in and trying to block the indian nuclear program well we developed a pretty effective nuclear weapons program and a pretty effective space program you know satellites etc etc the whole thing so we have that kind of a tradition let me say that publicly not much is said by either washington nor delhi but i think i'm reasonably happy that i think we are coming close because i believe an india us alliance on security and defense is essential in the 21st century to confront a power that frankly uh, does not recognize any limits to itself now let me say you know i've been in newspapers as you you're you're also in the media now the the top newspaper in a market in india at least 60 to 70% of the advertising goes to the top newspaper about 70% of the balance goes to the second newspaper the the other share the balance which is very little so 
the Chinese are unhappy at the immense leverage that America has got by being number one. For one thing, the dollar is the world reserve currency. You can print to your heart's content. You know, Donald Trump printed to his heart's content. Joe Biden is printing to his heart's content. And if I may say so, I strongly support that infrastructure bill. I think it will be a good bill. And because the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency, you guys will be able to afford it. You can do it. But the fact is, the day China takes over from you, and they're building the digital RMB, they're trying to, you know, kind of demonize the dollar. You look at Russia television, RT. Chinese television is more careful. Russian television constantly demonizes the dollar and says the dollar is about to collapse. It's going to have a reset. Now, once they become number one, all their advantage they feel will come to them. And it is a huge advantage to be number one. You will appeal to a lot of countries. You will quieten down a lot of countries. You will get away with a lot more. So they won that prize from the United States. They are working for it. And they don't want to stop until they get it, you know. So let me say that, uh, I mean, we are not the only country that is at risk. And those who believe, you know, conciliation, talks, compromises will get you anywhere. The reality is when you've got a fixed agenda and you're working like a metronome, by with metronomic regularity on with this alternate reality, any conciliation will be pocketed as due. You're only giving me a little bit of what is due to me anyway. So much more is due to me. It's not generosity at all. It's good sense on your part. And if you're more sensible, give me more. So the reality is that our chaps understand that very, very well. Certainly the, you know, the top people in this government understand it very well. And I'm, I'm not privy to what's going on, of course, but I'm reasonably certain that Washington, Delhi, uh, Canberra, Tokyo, London, various capitals are coordinating or as to what is to be done to meet this challenge in common. And I therefore still believe that, you know, there will be a nasty surprise waiting around the corner once this alternate reality challenges reality. So I'm curious. You, you, you're saying the, the two things that will most likely make the Chinese side uh, start a war or start some kind of conflict is India becoming a economic powerhouse and or India joining the U.S. in some kind of military alliance. But you also say both of those things have to happen. So where does that lead us? Look, uh, it's India on track to become an economic powerhouse through smart policy. Don't forget, we threw the British out in 47 and we retained the administrative system because politicians who came afterwards found that very convenient. The colonial system makes it very easy to proceed against civil society, to proceed against private individuals and protect the government, whatever the government does, and to have the cloak of official secrecy. I mean, all the privileges of, of a colonial government to retain that through the colonial system of administration and through retaining a lot of the, you know, the, uh, of the, I mean, of a lot of the other characteristics which the British left behind. Now, this was British law, not for the British people, not for a free people. It was British law for a colonized people. And that's the law that we've had in India. And that's the law that's prevented our country 
from really accelerating to the rate of growth that the talents in India, uh, you know, would permit. But now, as I said, younger people are coming in, especially in this century. And newer institutions are coming in. The digital world is coming in in a big way. And as a consequence, government is being left behind, in a sense. And you have a prime minister who is openly saying, minimum government, maximum governance. I don't want to stand in the way of this. So this is something that is worrying the Chinese. So as I said, before India goes on track to become what China was in 2003, that expansion has got to be, in their view, strangled at birth. So that is the point. And so far as the alliance is concerned, let me say that once you have a very overt and formal alliance between the United States, India, other countries, explicitly challenging China, in my view, that will be a fairly effective deterrent because it's going to be difficult to persuade even his other members in the Politburo of the alternate reality that he is believing in. But that is, unfortunately or fortunately, that is a way distant because of the immense economic clout of the Chinese. You know, even tech companies, I'm not going to name one of the largest tech companies in the world, in the United States, a lot of their big buyers, a lot of their money flow essentially comes from Chinese entities. So the Chinese are basically, you know, Santa Claus. To a, to a large number of corporations, and I'm sorry to say, to a large number of, uh, of other uh, civil society and other groups as well. So this is holding back that kind of an, of an open declaration that this is the target and this is the alliance. It's happening, yes, but in a sense, it's not happening overtly. Why? Because of the immense power of the Chinese uh, uh, ecosystem. The, you know, the ecosystem of, of privilege, of money, of wealth that is created through basically rolling over and ignoring, uh, you know, what the Chinese are doing. That's what they want. You just ignore what, what we are doing. We'll keep doing what we are doing until finally, you know, I mean, nobody can ignore it any longer, which is actually what has been happening over the last 30 years. So, I mean, again, I would like to repeat, the United, in the United States during Trump's era, Anything that was wrong in social media was a fault of the Democrats. Today, in the United States, anything that is wrong in the social media is a fault of the Republicans, especially the Trump Republicans. That's not true. Both our social media uh, 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 you know, e e e spheres are, have been invaded very subtly, very silently by the Sino-Russian and Sino-Wahhabi alliance. And let me point out, you have a strong alliance between Russia and China. What is hardly pointed out is the alliance between Wahhabism and China. Joe Biden said, I'm getting out of Afghanistan to concentrate on China. Well, uh, President Biden, please think again. The, the Taliban is part of the Wahhabi ecosystem. And that ecosystem is very helpful to China. What happened in 9-11? George Bush was talking about China, China, China. Suddenly after 9-11, it became Afghanistan, 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 Iraq this, that, Middle East, China was allowed to do what it liked. So the greatest diversion that China can create is through Wahhabi terror. And, you know, I'm not alleging anything. I'm only saying there is a clear alliance between Wahhabis and China. They are very close to Pakistan military, which is the Wahhabi military. 
very close to Turkey, very close to every single fundamentalist Wahhabi-run uh, state, not moderate states, Wahhabi-run states. This is, uh, this is one alliance. The other is the Sino-Russian alliance. Fortunately, the Russians and the Wahhabis don't see eye to eye. So it's two separate alliances. But these are pretty deadly alliances and they are very active. So as of now, we can't build up the head of steam necessary to openly announce the formation of an alliance designed explicitly to deter China. We don't want war. The idea is to prevent war. But I would only like to say that this kind of, you know, I mean, pussyfooting only makes war more or less inevitable. It happened in Europe in the past century. It is likely to play itself out in Asia now. Right. Well, a few years ago, the U.S. government sought to strengthen the Quad Alliance between the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. And we've recently seen military drills or naval drills, rather, in the Indian Ocean. That does seem to be a very overt and strengthened alliance. Where do you think this falls short of what the U.S. and India need to do together? Uh, Matt, I'm not going to comment on what it falls short of or whatever, but I'd like to point out, because as I said, a lot of things may be happening which I don't know anything about, but uh, I'd like to point out that India and the United States and Australia and Japan have all said this is not a military alliance. This is a vanilla alliance. We're basically looking for, uh, you know, a, a fun day in the amusement park. Uh, of course, we're looking at good deeds, vaccines and technology and things like that. You know, although it's supposed to be the quadrilateral security dialogue, the word security is never used now. The word defense is never used now. But you're right. The Quad is, in essence, a security and defense alliance. And in my view, it helps break the barriers between the establishments of different countries. The Indian establishment was very suspicious of the American establishment. The American establishment very suspicious of the Indian establishment. And small wonder, throughout Cold War 1.0, we were on the side of the Soviets. We were not on the American side. Uh, but the reality is that that period is over. And this, the Quad, has been very helpful. And apart from that, all these military exercises we're talking about, various military exercises, in the Navy, Air Force, Army. I think you've got U.S. Special Forces training in India. You have Indian Forces training in the U.S. A lot of activities going on that is not talked about. I don't think the U.S. has conducted as many joint exercises uh, with any country, I think, if you look at it statistically, as it has with a, a certain very large democracy. But I'd like to say that for the record, the Quad is not a military alliance. It's a very much a non-violent alliance in the Gandhian mode. It's not a military alliance. But, but what, we, what I'm talking about is an overt military alliance and meant to deter them. But my guess is that's only going to come after this war takes place. If after, I mean, if I'm wrong and they attack Taiwan, uh, well, or if I'm, you know, more, I mean, in a sense, if my, my prediction is more accurate and they go after India instead, after that, it is likely to emerge. But it's unlikely before that because of the huge institutional, the way in which the, the Chinese communist state has embedded itself into the fabric of our democracy, into civil society, 
into the media, into government, into politics, into industry, into every section of civil society. The way they have embedded themselves is making that very, very difficult. Well, speaking of Taiwan, I imagine a Chinese invasion, uh, a successful invasion of Taiwan, would have a big impact on the uh, security of India. What kind of support is India giving to Taiwan, or what do you think they should be doing to uh, defend Taiwan from a Chinese invasion? Look, uh, uh, I can only say that on the record, uh, India is giving nothing. But when, when I go to Taipei, and I have the privilege of meeting President Tsai whenever I'm in Taipei, well, she smiles very broadly. And she refuses to answer any question about what India is doing or whatever. And when I talk to our leadership, they also smile very broadly and they refuse to give any answer. So probably they believe that, I mean, you know, I'm not smart enough to understand an answer or whatever it is, but both sides are smiling. I'm happy to see that. So as far as Taiwan is concerned, well, the, the one important thing that's going to be a hit is chip making. The Chinese want Taiwan because of computer chips, because of the Taiwanese tech industry. Taiwan, Japan, and the United States have basically made China the artificial intelligence powerhouse that is there, that is capable of challenging them. They have made that, especially the Taiwanese. And now all three realize that mistake. So as far as India is concerned, if Taiwan is looking very much at India. In fact, there's an idea of, of you know, Taiwanese tech companies coming into India in a big way and chip making being a very important factor. The entire knowledge industry in the democracies will be affected if Taiwan is taken over. I can assure you. So it's a, a, this first island chain will be breached. And more importantly, the entire credibility of the American defense system will be breached. That's what's happened in Afghanistan. Yes. Soldiers leaving Afghanistan, I fully support. U.S. troops are not needed there. I know the Afghan people, they don't like to see any foreigner there. But to remove logistical support from the Afghan National Army and from the Afghan Air Force was to tell them to commit harakiri. What was Joe Biden thinking when he did that? Was he even thinking at all? And that has created a doubt in the minds of every single person from let us say, west of India, from Afghanistan, right up, if I may say so, to the, to the Middle East and the Gulf countries, not Israel, fortunately, because I think they have a special relationship. But barring Israel, about the reliability of the U.S. alliance, and therefore they're now flirting very openly with the Sino-Russian alliance. They're flirting openly with it because they, they, they're afraid. And the Russians, at least, they stood by Assad and they basically got him out of the ditch in which he was being thrown in. And the Chinese have also been standing by whatever, I mean, they, you, you don't like the regimes they're supporting, but they're supporting it openly. They've gone and signed a $400 billion deal with Iran, $400 billion. In our case, in my view, mistakenly, we stopped buying oil from Iran. We have put our Chabahar port, which we are developing with Iran, at risk. And Chabahar is the only access that we have because Pakistan has blocked access to Central Asia and Afghanistan by land and rail. 
Iran is crucial for that access, and we should not have stopped buying, you know, Iranian oil. Fortunately, we have our relations have become much better now. We had multiple visits by the our foreign minister. Their ministers have come here, so I think we are repairing some of that damage. Very few countries, I would like to say, want to be dominated, and certainly, I think even the countries that are closest to China, even Russia, for example, you know, Donald Trump. Was not entirely speaking through his uh, his cap when he was talking about Russia. The reality is that the Russians have been, in a sense, by default, have had to go into the Chinese camp. And today they are empowering Chinese tech. And in three or four years, it'll be too late. It'll be irreversible. After a point, you know, geopolitical shifts become irreversible uh, for except in the very long term. And that's what's happening between Russia and China. So in our case, we should certainly withdraw from the defense sector where Russia is concerned, and we should move more heavily with the Americans. I've been saying that openly that we should not have been buying this S-400 system. We should have encouraged Lockheed and and Boeing to set up in India, and I think that of course will happen. At the same time, we may go ahead with the S-400, and I don't think we're going to get too much of sanctions because I think frankly uh, that seems to be.、Uh, I mean, realization seems to have come as to why you know Russia is not a reliable partner. Because every day the Russians are showing how, frankly, how much, how linked they are to China from the point of view of security. And we're linked to China. You're linked to the Wahhabis, who are their allies. Let's face it, you know. So we are be up even the most pro-Russian people in India. There are a lot of them. Especially who still believe this is Soviet Union and not Russia, and the Soviet Union and India had a very cozy relationship.、Uh, Russia is a very commercial relationship,、uh, but that romanticism is going away. But I again like to point out the India-U.S. alliance is not going to be like the Japan-U.S., Germany-U.S., U.K.-U.S. or alliances like that. It is going to be sui generis. You know, there was no real alliance between China and America, but there was a de facto understanding,、uh, and both of them were on one page in weakening the Soviet Union. Let's admit that the Chinese were very useful and very helpful, and the Americans were hyper useful and hyper helpful in developing China. But in the same way, we don't need an understanding; we need an alliance with the uh, with the uh, you know. Americans, because it's Cold War 2.0, and that is what the Chinese are worried about. That we will do what they did during Cold War 1.0, which is basically take sides and take advantage of that. And that is what we need to do. And that is where I think you know events dealing with China may ultimately compel us to do. But I think it will be because of、uh, China's efforts, somewhat bullying. Rash and clumsy efforts to block it. So you know,、uh, this is the point. China will miscalculate. Wars are caused through miscalculation. And as I said, I see a large, if I may say so, whiff of 1930s Europe that's happening in my continent today. I see the same lack of understanding of the other side, the same determination, ruthlessness, the same. I think what the Germans call Gleichschaltung. You know that again. I think it translates into coordination. Everything was coordinated to a purpose, and ultimately, 
the guarantor was the Wehrmacht, the German army. And because of the alternate reality in which the, that psychotic uh, leader of Germany lived in, the most talented people in the world, the Jewish community, was persecuted and almost eliminated. In fact, that was the end of the war for Hitler because that was the most talented community in Germany. And if they had been part of Germany, as almost all of them wanted to be, they would have been an immense force multiplier. This man did the most horrible thing possible and denuded the world of some of the world's finest talent. But apart from that, he invaded and finally about 30 million people had to die before he was brought to heel. The more we delay, the more lives are going to be lost. But I fear, frankly, a large number of lives are going to be lost because as of now, I don't see, you know, reality challenging alternate reality anytime soon. What are the things that you see that are not being done that could stop the uh, sliding into, you know, what happened in the 1930s? You know, I'd like to say that what Obama did in the case of the Spratly Islands, for example, when the China just grabbed it from the Philippines, Obama stood by. And uh, South China Sea militarization. I mean, the fact is that the Chinese have got away so far with all their, with all their bluster and their bullying and their tactics. So you can't really forgive them for believing they'll get away with a lot more. You know, and their agenda is open. It's not hidden. Xi Jinping, at least give him credit, he is basically very transparent about his agenda. The Chinese Communist Party is a Han supremacist party. It believes in the supremacy of the Han race. And it genuinely believes that if the Han race dominates the world, the whole world will be a happier place. The whole world will be a better place. If all of us come under the domination of the Han people, we will all be much more happy than what we are now under, you know, whatever, I don't think call it domination in the case of democracies, under the leaders that we have, which they believe that. It's not something that they're putting on for effect. They believe that today they are capable, they are big, they are strong enough to do what they want to do. The, this alternate reality is becoming stronger and stronger. And the stronger and stronger it becomes, the more traditional tactics completely fail against it. Now, you know, your program is China unscripted. China is very scripted. And that, of course, is their Achilles heel. Because they will fight a war, an AI war. A war that, you know, AI machines say this tactic, this tactic. And if the enemy confuses them by going into entirely different tactics, you know, flexible, improvisation, then and if it's beyond the capacity of the machine to follow, if it's entirely new tactics, well, then the machine is going to be, you know, in trouble. Their army has been trained to fight like robots on a prearranged plan as per artificial intelligence, you know. And the minute you see sudden, unexplained, almost random, almost irrational alterations and changes in those plans, well, what happens? The plan falls apart. That's what happened in Russia. You know, fine. I mean, thank, uh, Americans helped in a huge way. Huge amount of material was given to the Russians. But the fact is that the Russians improvised. Stalin realized that control over the Stavka was, was wrong. He gave them freedom, complete freedom. He took that away 
after the war, but gave it to them during the war. And as a consequence, each general improvised, you know, whether it is Zhukov, whether it is Timoshenko, whether it is any of these generals, they improvised. And they would improvise on their own because they had the authority to do so. You know, Marshal Zhukov would say, go ahead. I'm, I'm not here for you. You guys go ahead and do it. And this, frankly, destroyed Hitler's effectiveness because they were used to a certain predictable response from the enemy side. And when the enemy failed to react predict predictably, they could not respond adequately at all. So I don't really like to say that the same weakness is there in China, as I see, you know, because they've not really fought a war. In a war, as I mean, you have to, you know, things happen which you don't plan for. In a, in, a, in a video game or in a computer simulation, it never happens. Everything is within the box that you've already worked out. Anything outside that box is foreign to you. So once it's foreign to that AI machine, now, for example, they have simulations of personality. Your personality, my personality, Matt's personality. I'm sure they'll have perfect simulations of that based on our social media tracking, our profiling, etc. Now, if we go there and behave in a different way, I mean, they won't know how to react because they have been, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean I'll give you an example. My wife, uh, Lakshmi Bai, her family has had a long relationship with Imperial China because she was the royal family of Travancore. For hundreds of years ago, the emperors used to give gifts to the Travancore family, and the Travancore family would send gifts to them. So there's been a long relationship, and there's a certain degree of sentiment. So she was the, the, first, the, the, the first delegation invited uh, by China after the, uh, this uh, Pokhran test or whatever you call it, was composed of, of, of a, a very famous uh, a gentleman called Subramanian Swami, a Harvard-educated professor, then a lady called Chandraleka, and my wife, uh, Lakshmi Bai. And she went there. Now, the Chinese uh, assigned somebody to Chandraleka who was knew all the shops in town. You know, the uh, whatever, design shop, jewelry shop, whatever. My wife, all the traditional arts and crafts in town. So they knew exactly what they wanted, what they liked down to the menu, what they liked, you know, that somebody likes speaking duck, they know it, and lo and behold, you're served speaking duck. If you're a vegetarian like me, you're only served vegetarian food. So let me tell you, but they've studied all that, but the limitation of that is sometimes we are mavericks, if we are eccentrics, and we follow maverick and eccentric policies, that may throw them a little bit off balance. So I'm quite confident about the democracies holding their own. I mean, I know we, uh, it was throughout, in India, for example, we're talking about the Indian military. And yes, the Chinese were saying, oh, the military, nothing, nothing to worry about. This is the only military that has defeated Wahhabi forces in irregular combat. It did not work in Afghanistan. It did not work in Iraq. It did not work in Libya. It did not work in Syria. Our military held them and defeated them in Kashmir. And they did it without aircraft, without helicopters, without bombs, without artillery, only with sidearms and with rifles. No bombs, no rifles, no helicopters, 
nothing of that kind no artillery and our military succeeded why because of our focus on mind space i i, I don't want to take too much time but i'd like to say one of the mind spaces was there were there are three or four crossing routes uh, for jihadis coming into india they were told in pakistan that muslims are not safe in india they can't pray in india mosques were built along these crossing routes so that whenever a jihadi crossed the frontier unseen that person would come across a mosque and see people peacefully at prayer and say my god i was told that muslims can't pray peacefully in india and these people are praying peacefully so that will knock some of the credibility of what the indoctrination they got some of the confidence of the people who entered inside and finally enough will be not to enable them frankly to be sent back home on a one way ticket so which the our army succeeded in doing you know that's why i'm not worried about another invasion from pakistan the pakistan they they don't say that they know it and that's why you know i'm quite confident about our military as far as the chinese are concerned it's you know it's sort of video war that our soldiers are fighting it's a real war i can tell you so as far as they're concerned and i am very confident president biden prime minister modi is on the same page where it comes to the outcome of any sino indian conflict or absolutely on the same page now i don't know what is being done if anything is being done because i am not privy to any of that information but i i can't believe nothing is being done by people whose national security establishments have given them detailed briefings about the immense threat that is being faced by these two democracies and by others by china again i repeat one of my few complaints is the social media activities of the sino russian alliance is not sufficiently under the microscope the way the fringes are being empowered the way hate groups are being created multiplied on both sides you know you have hate groups on the left on the right you have hate groups in the hindu on the muslim that is a very dangerous phenomenon and that needs to be checked i think you know our ntro national technical research organization your national security agency they need to work on this and we the democracies need a coordinated action plan because cyber let look let me say the chinese concept of war and i'm talking about the classic chinese concept of war it doesn't mean just bang bang and guns and all that no it means dominating the mind of the enemy and making the enemy do what you want the enemy to do and that can be through cyber that can be through friendship that can be through bullying that can be through poisoning uh, food that can be through spreading disease it can be any way war is a multifaceted activity with multi weapon activity and that is the chinese concept of war i think sometimes people in the west fail to understand that oh chinese are peaceful because they never really gone to war they are at war it's just a different kind of war and they're ready to go to other kind of war when they feel prepared for it you have to understand their mind their mindset because we don't do that and you kind of transpose your mindset on them you're likely to make some very bad mistakes so if the chinese concept of war is to dominate the minds of the enemy how do you fight that well by not being dominated very simple by not being dominated and by by basically showing 
that uh, they cannot succeed, including in a conventional war. I mean, you know, I don't want to be, I mean, you know, unpleasant about this, but frankly, that uh, the Chinese side will pay much the heavier price in any such conflict. I think that will be uh, pretty uh, difficult for President, uh, General Secretary Xi to, to the shock to take because the Chinese people will be quite upset with that, given the triumphalist way in which he is saying, we can do anything, we can, we can winnow anything, we can do anything. Well, uh, that is the point. We are a long way from being dominated, believe me. And more importantly, ASEAN and India. The Prime Minister just addressed the ASEAN uh, leaders. And believe me, every one of them is grateful that they've been given some breathing space by India. Because very politely, we're not Xi Jinping, we're not Wang Yi, we're not wolf warriors. Very politely, we've made it very clear, we won't stand for this kind of behavior. It's got to stop. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. This was very illuminating. It's a privilege and a pleasure. And I must say that, you know, you have been scripting a, a, a very, if I may say so, straightforward uh, dialogue about China. And I think, if not today, maybe five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line, people are going to be very grateful to you for that. Oh, well, it's nice to think Thank about you. that. Yeah. Thank you. God bless you. Well, he really knew his stuff. I feel a little bit better about um, democracy after hearing him talk about really? how that can be an advantage. You were feeling bad about democracy? Well, <laughs> uh, that's a rabbit hole I don't want to go down. Uh, but his point was interesting that, you know, the thing that the Chinese Communist Party criticizes the most about ch democracy, right, is that it's chaotic. Mm -hmm. Like all oh, the chaotic, the, the problems with democracy, it's so chaotic, you know, et cetera. Uh, unless it's, of course, the Chinese Communist Party. I prefer democracy. to think of it as roguelike. Yeah. Well, I think his point was that there's actual benefits to that chaos. It's chaotic by design. Yeah, right. and and the it's something that the 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 Communist Party doesn't have a way to deal with right. essentially. Like if if our response to their invasion of Taiwan is something that they could never have predicted, like uh, like we drop balloons in the shape of Xi Jinping over mainland China. And then You've like just given it away, Matt. You know, but like what are they going to shoot them down? Their AI doesn't know what to do. So it's just one like Taiwan's not going to do that. I'm just saying that this kind of like outside the box thing We're is going to completely mess with them. Spitball. This hey, is a yeah. brainstorm. What if Blue we sky. start a campaign to fund a bunch of Winnie the Pooh balloons that we drop on Beijing? That would be uh, interesting, and I don't know what the consequences of that would be. <laughs> what, what, I, I was suggesting something after a sort of troop invasion. Yeah, because that's when balloons will make big difference. Uh, no, I'm just saying, because then they waste their missiles. I'm <laughs> missiles. I'm not a military commander. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sir, they've released the balloons. Fire the missiles. Nuke them. <laughs> oh, uh. But, Matt uh, is no Soviet general. No. <laughs> um, okay, so so much for being an agent of chaos. But, you know, that's what I was thinking about. Also, the whole thing about China, how the education system works to essentially produce people who can memorize things and spit it back at you. But 
Like even the Olympic, the 2008 Beijing Olympic ceremony was that idea. Look at all these robots working together. Oh, my gosh. They were so great at beating the drums, though. I mean, yeah, it was impressive. But yeah, it's it's like you're right, Shelley. It's geared like when you have a centralized authoritarian government, it's just geared into turning everyone into cogs in the machines that have no individual agency. It's it's like a. Every time there's a military parade, there's like some shot of soldiers and there's like a whole row of them and they're all like simultaneously moving their heads. But also with like really weird eyes. So it yeah. looks yeah. like- We can yeah. show that on the video podcast. Yes. Oh yes, that's true. But for all of you listening on Stitcher or Spotify, well, I'm sorry. Or Apple, or Apple Podcasts. Podcasts. Or our website. We have a website, guys. It's chinaunscripted.com. No, it's not. Is it .com? Not well. I mean, I guess it wouldn't make sense for it to be .tv. It's a podcast. It's I. I am correct in in our website URL. But thank you. Look, Matt. I'm just being an agent of chaos. <laughs> well, that's a good excuse for anything, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris wreaks havoc on the China scripted podcast. Shelley oh, is it's flabbergasted. Like, now, now I'm also second guessing what I. Th- was so certain was true. See, he's working. He's Psychological warfare. Psycho- psychologically, he's dominating your mind. You're not I, supposed to undermine me. I've learned much from the Chinese Communist Party. Or have they learned much from me? <laughs> Dramatic <laughs> plot twist. <laughs> the real power behind Xi Jinping. Chris Chappell. Wow. Bet you didn't see that one coming. General hostility. Wow. What a show. <laughs> Uh, did did we just get too stupid to carry on? <laughs> this I is usually how the podcast ends. I'm oh yeah, sure. no, I was I was waiting for you to end it right there. Well, okay. Yeah, if you sure. have if you have something smart to say, Shelley, make us look good. Well, maybe that we should just celebrate the chaos of di- <laughs> democracy. Then let's celebrate the chaos of democracy. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganeshda. We'll talk to you next time.